Would you join me as we read God's word in preparation for this sermon? Uh, our text today is John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and have a seat. Uh, let's pray together. Our Father God, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you would make us attentive to it. Open our, uh, our hearts, our eyes, our ears, our minds to receive what you have for us and what you would apply it to us so that we might leave here more conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus than when we came. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. If you've been with us um, the last couple of weeks, um, We're walking through an Advent series, and we're considering uh, what the Bible teaches us about light. Two weeks ago, we started by considering darkness. For considering light, it's a good thing to consider what it's shining into. So we considered darkness. In Genesis, God spoke light into darkness. And we saw that this was God's pattern. God loves to illuminate darkness, and he will continue to do that until there is no darkness left in the world. God established a world at the beginning of creation where darkness existed. And he did that because he wanted to show the world what happens when you introduce something as brilliant as light into darkness. And when light comes into the darkness, what happens? You begin to see that there's immense beauty hidden behind the darkness. We've all likely had this experience. If you wake up, or if you ever have woken up before the dawn, and it's dark outside. Maybe you go out on your porch, or you look out the window or something, and you don't really see much of anything. But then, as soon as the sun peaks over the horizon, the sky begins to swirl with colors. The grass and trees have color. In certain places, you see animals scurrying about or grazing. When light invades darkness, we discover beauty, and it makes us more eager to see the darkness cast out. When it's dark, cliffs and oceans are a terror, but in the light, they are a glory. We know this because no one goes to the Grand Canyon at dark, right? When do they go? They go at dawn. Or maybe at dusk. But either way, they go to see the light shine. They go to see the darkness cast out. Then last week, we saw uh, that the light that God spoke into the darkness is the light of life. What the Bible teaches us is that people walk in darkness. They actually do live. They're walking, but they're living in darkness. And if we want to live truly We must have God's light. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that at one point we were darkness. But then the light of Christ shone at Christmas and that changed everything. If you ever took a psychology class in high school or college, you may remember reading about a little girl called Jeannie. She was um, 
born in the 1950s uh, in California, and she has spent, essentially spent the first 13 years of her life locked in darkness. The details of what was done to her are really heartbreaking, and I'm not going to share those, but uh, I'm bringing her up because she is a picture of living in the dark and truly living in the light. In the dark, Jeannie could not walk. She couldn't talk. She was malnourished. But once she was brought into the light, she began to truly live. At almost 14 years old, she learned to walk. She learned to communicate. and She learned to smile. The Bible says if we walk in darkness, we will eventually find our way into a pit. And the only way out of a pit is the light. The problem is we're sinners. And so when someone has the audacity to say to us, you're in a pit, we in our pride respond, how do you know? It's dark. It could be a pit, but maybe it's a palace. Maybe I just need to find the switch and turn the light on. We reject help of others. We reject the light because we don't want to admit that we've gotten ourselves into trouble. This is exactly what Adam did after he and Eve had sinned in the garden. What did they do? They made cloths to cover themselves, to hide their bodies. They heard God coming, and what did they do? They went and hid behind the trees. What Adam should have done after sinning was run to the light. He should have run to God and confessed. He should have exposed his sin to the light because Paul says, uh, also in Ephesians 5, that when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Anything, he says, that becomes visible is light. This is what Chris was talking about last week from John 8 when he was talking about possessing the light, owning the light. The invitation of the gospel is to expose your sins. It is not to hide them. It's to acknowledge them and watch the radiance of God's light banish them and illuminate you. We as sinners struggle with this. We don't understand it because we don't understand God's love for sinners. And so rather than expose our sins to the light, we try to cover them up in the dark. But God is a faithful father, and he will not allow his children to play in the dark. Today we're going to see another aspect of light that we find in the Bible. We've already seen that it comes from God, that it shines in the darkness, and that's what, that it's what we need for true life. And today we get some fantastic news that the light is unconquerable. Once God's light dawns, it cannot be defeated. So we're going to break these uh, five verses of John. Uh, we're going to break them down. Uh, and we're going to see that the coming of Jesus was the dawn of God's unconquerable son. So John begins in a place that we all probably know. We might even have it memorized. He begins with these famous words, in the beginning which, of course, should take our minds right to Genesis 1, to the very beginning of the Bible, the very beginning of creation. And John is a storyteller. And you can almost imagine, if you read these 
first 18 verses of John 1, uh, they read like the narration before a theater performance or like the uh, introduction to uh, a documentary about creation on National Geographic. But of course, it has to be read with an English accent. Uh, but e either way, uh, th these words, they carry weight. They're deep. And that's where John wants to take us. In Genesis, we read, in the beginning, God. And here we read, in the beginning was the Word. Now, why does John do that? Why does he shift the subject of creation from God to Word? The first thing to know is he's talking to Greeks. Okay, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. So, if you read the Gospels, the Jews wanted Jesus to do miracles. They wanted him to perform signs because their people had seen God do miraculous things in the past. So, that's what they were after. That's what, the, that's what kind of proof they wanted. That's also why at the beginning of Matthew and Luke, you get genealogies. Genealogies are a little bit weird to us because we don't think like Hebrews. But if you read the Old Testament... You can't get through much of it without a lot of genealogy. In some sense, those genealogies are a sign. They're a proof saying we know exactly where this person comes from, or for our purposes, where Jesus comes from. But John isn't speaking to Hebrews. He's speaking to Greeks who want wisdom. They're philosophical people. And by shifting from in the beginning God to in the beginning was the word or the Greek word there is logos, and the beginning was the logos. We translate that word logos as word in our English Bibles. Um, and it's helpful, it's, it's what it means, but it's also not deep enough. Um, by saying in the beginning was the logos, uh, John is appealing to the Greeks. Because if you just said in the beginning, God, well, the Greeks knew a lot about gods. They had lots of them. But Greek philosophy understood the Logos differently. They understood Logos as divine truth or universal or ultimate meaning. The Greeks were wise enough to know that you can't just have a God for this and a God for that. That you need something uh, behind that, antecedent to it, something underneath it, more foundational. And so they talked about the Logos. But they didn't know what it was. They didn't know how to describe it, and so they disagreed. The Greek philosophers disagreed on what the Logos was really like. The Greek philosopher Plato talked about the Logos in terms of imminence. The Logos was accessible. It was available. It was near. This conception of God uh, was that he was a worker for the people. He cared about the people. But the Greek philosopher Aristotle he came right after Plato, and he said, no, 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 no. The Logos is uh, completely detached. The Logos is the uncaused, caused, the, the uncaused cause, the unmoved mover. God was completely transcendent, above everything, not imminent, not for the people. That's the big dilemma in Greek philosophy. Is the Logos imminent, or is it transcendent? It was divine truth Available, accessible, or was it ethereal and untouchable? And John comes in with this remarkable statement, in the beginning was the Logos. 
So the Greeks were right. The Logos is real. There is ultimate meaning. There is universal truth. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God. That's interesting. Okay, so God and the Logos are together. Does that mean that one comes from the other? He goes on to say that the Logos was with God and the Logos was God. Okay, so the Logos is somehow both with God and also is God. This is a very shocking idea, but it's actually how the Greeks learned about the Trinity. Ultimate truth and meaning could be found with God, and they're also a part of God. But then in verse 2, the pronoun shifts. It says, he. The Greek word is hutos. It means this one, or more personally, he. And what John has just done is he's moved the idea of logos from a concept to a person. The logos is a he. He was in the beginning with God. The logos is found in a person who is both with God and is God. Verse 3. All things were made through him. Okay, which means the lowercase g gods, they didn't make anything. They're not responsible for anything. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. That sounds kind of funny. Right? Apart from him was not anything made that was made. Seems like there would be an easier way to say that. But John is getting at something more than just existence. He's saying nothing has being except that which the Logos gave being. The Logos is the source of meaning and truth, and he is also the source of being. There is a whole branch of philosophy called ontology that studies the concept of being and essence. And John is saying that also comes from the Logos. The Logos is meaning. It is truth. It's also the very essence of what we are and who we are, the very nature of our being. This is what Paul says in Athens. So he's in Greece. Uh, This is what Paul says in Acts 17. He says, in him, speaking of Christ, in him we live and move and have being. John goes on in verse 4. In him was life. Okay. True life is found in the Logos. John is taking the Greek conception of God of ultimate reality and he's expanding it. So we have truth in the Logos. Meaning exists in the Logos. Being exists in the Logos. Life itself is found in the Logos. More than that, this life, he says, is the light. He is the light of men. How does man live? John says they live by his light. That's how we truly live. This gets at what Jesus says uh, later in the Gospel of John. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? So he is ultimate truth, he is life, and he is the way, the lighted path to the truth. It's all about him. Everything in creation points to him. Everything is dependent upon him. He gives life and he is light. So if we want to understand anything, if we want to understand truth, life, meaning, 
You have to know him. And you have to walk in his light. We come to verse 5. The light shines in the darkness. Now, Greeks love light. Liked thinking about light. They thought about it, and really, in a lot of the same terms we do. Why do we say when we have a good idea, light bulb, right? Because there's a connection between uh, thought and understanding of something and light. So just like we like to talk about something lighting our way, guiding our path, they spoke of light guiding them to wisdom and knowledge. They saw a connection between light and truth. And here John is drawing again on Genesis 1. In verses 3 through 5 of Genesis 1, we read about God speaking light. Light was his speech. Then here in verses 4 and 5, we get the same thing. The Logos is the message. He is the speech. He is the word that is spoken, and he is light. In Genesis 1, God speaks light, and then he separates light from darkness. Here in verse 5, the same thing happens. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's separate. They can't be together. Darkness cannot be where light is. Now, John does something very cool here. John really, uh, he likes to use words with double meanings. Again, he's a storyteller. He likes to keep his readers thinking. So if you remember in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and Jesus tells him that he has to be born anothen. Uh, It's a Greek word that means both again and from above. And Nicodemus is a little confused uh, by that. But he's trying to convey the same thing with a single word. It has multiple meanings. And here we get the, uh, the same idea. Um, we, we get a word that sometimes is translated as uh, overcome. And sometimes it's translated as uh, uh, comprehend or understand. Both are correct. What John is saying about the relationship between uh, darkness and light is two things. Um, The darkness can't grasp the light. It has no authority over it, so it cannot overcome it. The light defeats the darkness. The light drives it out. And it means that it can't grasp the light in the sense that it can't understand it. It doesn't get it. Try for a moment imagining... Uh, imagine trying to explain the concept of brightness to someone born blind. If you had to come up with words to explain brightness to someone who can't see light, how hard would that be? Trying to explain uh, radiance or the rays of the sun would be very hard. This is why people in uh, the Bible would call out to Jesus and say, open my eyes, let me see. This is also why non-Christians are not compelled when you say that Jesus changed your life. Because they can't see the light. They can't comprehend it. They're walking around in darkness refusing to look at the sun because they don't get it. So what should we take from this? I've got one point for you today. That's it. The light of God's unconquerable sun dawned at Christmas. And it will never set. 
The light of God's unconquerable sun dawned at Christmas, and it will never set. The darkness has not overcome it, and it cannot overcome it. We get kind of mystified by these verses because they're heavenly. They're very high and lofty. Oh, he is the word. He's God. He's life. But maybe we're thinking too much like the Greeks who said he is only transcendent. Oh, the Logos is responsible for life and meaning and everything. And we're forgetting the other Greeks who also said, yeah, the Logos is imminent. He's near. He cares. He's involved with us. I worry that even as Christians, we think too much like the the Aristotelians, the, the Greeks who thought only of God's transcendence. The Greeks couldn't find agreement between that. You know, is God transcendent or is, is he imminent? And John, right here in the first chapter, solves the major dilemma of Greek philosophy. Is he transcendent or is he imminent? And he says the Logos, oh, he's ancient. He was in the beginning. And he was with God and he is God. But it's a he. He's a person. He is transcendent and he's imminent. But John, how can that be? You might wonder. You say he's light and life. That's really great, but that doesn't sound very imminent. How can I know him? What else does the Logos do? In verse 14 of John 1, it says, And the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Ultimate meaning, divine truth, they are found in a person. They are found in the transcendent God. But if he transcends everything, again, how do we know him? He's too high. He's above us. Yes, except for when he comes down to us. This is what happened at Christmas. God came to his people, the word, the logos, the one responsible for life and existence. He became flesh. We think so often in Greek terms. We worry about the darkness. We worry about the darkness that surrounds us. We see and we feel the brokenness of sin. It's true. And we, we know that God's there, but so often we think he seems far away. Is he watching? Does he know what's happening? Does he care? Maybe we get this picture like that uh, movie Bruce Almighty. Remember when uh, Jim Carrey like, becomes God for a short time and he can't handle all of the prayers of the people. They're just irritating to him. And so he replies yes to all of them so he can avoid them. Maybe we think of God a little bit too much like that. He's not really paying attention. He doesn't really care. And we forget that he came. And he came not only to observe the brokenness, but to become a victim of it. The angels of God observed the brokenness in Genesis 18 and 19 when they went and visited Sodom. They saw the brokenness, and what did they do? They destroyed it. They rained down fire from heaven on it. And here's the crazy thing. We are no better than the people of Sodom. I'm not being hyperbolic when I say that. We murder children. We call holy what God calls an abomination. We have lost our sense of rationality. 
We can't tell the difference between left and right and up and down and boy and girl. We in the church make jokes about those people, the people who think like that, the people that, well, we, we find humor at their expense, but we forget that those people are us. They're just us a few years down the road or a few generations down the road. If we are not actively pushing back against the madness, pushing back against the darkness, it is because we are darkness and the light's not in us. Jesus Christ did not come to observe the brokenness. He came to cast light into it. He came to redeem it, to expel the darkness. So funny, we are scared. We're scared to speak the truth. Because we fear that the darkness won't like our message of light. But Jesus did not come to reason with the darkness. He came to cast it out. Jesus didn't ask demons to leave the person they possess. He commanded them. He cast them out of people. If we are afraid of the darkness, it's because we're not looking at the light. The world speaks unkindly to Christians who stand on the word. They say, how can you know what God thinks? How arrogant of you to think that you know the mind of God. Who are you to say what's best for everyone? And we should be ready to respond, well, it's only arrogant if he hasn't told us. To speak for God when he has not spoken, that is arrogant and that is dangerous. But to refuse to speak for God when he has spoken, that's arrogant. To say again what God has already, says, has already said, it's not arrogant, that's faithful. And then to say it again and again and again. To repeat the message of the Logos. To show people where they can find life and meaning and truth. To show them that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's not arrogant. Now... We struggle with this plan because it's hard. If we could have advised God, we probably would have said, let's do this a little differently. Because God's plan requires us to take risks. Trying to convince someone that they are walking around blind when they are convinced that they see, it's very hard to convince them. Nigh impossible. And yet that's exactly what God sends us to do. God sends us to wake up the dead. To shine light into the darkness. But how can we do it? We can only shine light if light is first shining in us. We can only raise the dead if God first gives us the words to call them with. I've recently been reading through the prophet Ezekiel. And it's a strange book. Uh, it's hard and it's weird. But if you read it, one of the things that you'll come away with is uh, just the thought that God is determined to make sure that all the nations know who he is. He was going to send armies against nations. He's going to crush empires. And it seems like in almost every paragraph, he says, I'm going to do this so that they will know that I am the Lord. He says it over and over and over again. But when he speaks of Israel... He says something a little different. He says, I'm going to do this or that 
so that they'll know I am the Lord, their God. I'm not just God. I don't want them to know that I, that I just am. I want them to know that I am the Lord, their God. I am for them. But here's the strange and kind of puzzling thing about Ezekiel, is Ezekiel also had to speak against Israel. So if these are the people who he is speaking against, how are they supposed to know this, Lord? Lord, your people have become just like all the other nations. And now they're in captivity in another nation. It doesn't seem like God's plan to have a special people is going that well if you're reading through Ezekiel. But what does God do when things are bad? What does God do when the darkness takes over? Well, he takes Ezekiel to a graveyard. He takes him to a place where death reigns. And he says, Son of man, can these bones live? Imagine being Ezekiel for a moment. You're standing there, you're looking at all of these bones spread around you, and you've never seen bones do anything but lie there dead. And God says, can these bones live? Um, I don't know, Lord. And Ezekiel kind of responds that way. He, he responds in a good way, but he, 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 maybe a safe way. Um, God says, can these bones live? And he says, uh, Lord, that's a bit above my pay grade. Maybe... Maybe you should answer that question. Lord, I think you're, you're just the right person to answer that. And so he says, Lord, you know. And God says, well, then preach to the bones. Preach to the bones. Say to them, hear the word of the Lord. And Ezekiel did. And it says, the bones came together, and muscles and sinews formed on them, and breath entered them. The Word gave life, because in Him is life, and it is the light of men. Church, do you walk in the light? Do you carry the light into the darkness? Does the idea of the graveyard fill you with too much terror? The idea of preaching to the bones. If you light a candle in a dark room, it's unmistakable, right? Everybody can see it. We, we may be living in a dark time. And I believe we are. But, church, we are armed with light. The Logos is the light. And it is also life. And its life is in you. And its light has shone on you. In children's stories, uh, there, every now and then you find a story about uh, the kid who's walking around and he always has the rain cloud above him. Right? Wherever he goes, it rains on him. Poor kid. Right? We don't have that as Christians. The light follows us. When God's people were in Egypt and there was darkness throughout the land, that was true everywhere except the land of Goshen, where God's people dwelt. When God brought the people out of Egypt, he led them through the wilderness by a pillar of light. God lights the path for his people. God sends his light into his people, whose spirit dwells in you. It is Jesus, the light of the world. 
We fear the darkness because we are not seeing the light clearly. And church, I am calling us to look at the light, to look at Jesus. He is not far off from you. His spirit is in you. His light shines on you. And Hebrews tells us that he prays for you. The light of God's unconquerable sun dawned at Christmas. It shines, church. And it is never, never going to set. You need to know that. And there's still that part of us that says, yeah, I know. I know this whole like never setting hope thing, like that's really helpful, it's good. But again, we think of it only in those transcendent terms. Yeah, it's true, I know Jesus, Jesus is in heaven, he can't die now, he's never going to set. Yeah, he's transcendent on his throne, yes he is. But is he not present with us? Is his spirit not carrying us along? Jesus came to be Emmanuel. God with us. That was not just a pastime thing. He's still with us. He is with us and we carry on by His Spirit in us. We carry on His presence. We get to be the presence of Emmanuel in the world by His Spirit at work in us. God's people thought they'd been abandoned in Egypt and God came for them. They thought they'd been abandoned in Babylon, and he came for them. They thought they'd been abandoned after Malachi, when there was no prophet for four centuries, and he came for them. God comes for his people. He will not leave you. His light is not going to set. It is going to illuminate everything. It is going to win, church. Where does the Bible tell us that? Well, it tells us that in lots of places, but two in particular that we're going to look at. Uh, the first is Isaiah 9. We probably know these verses also very well, but I wonder if we've internalized them. I'm going to read just a couple of verses, verse 2, verses 6 and 7. It says this in Isaiah 9, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Well, that sounds very exciting, doesn't it? But, oh, Andrew, you may be saying, well, that's the government of Israel, or maybe that's the government of the church. Or that's the government of heaven, perhaps. Some, some future government that he's going to set up when he returns. I see. Well, if you think that, then I have a question for you. Is Jesus king now? Is he the king? If he is king now, then his government has been established it's not a future reality. It is both a present reality and a future reality. And then verse 7 of Isaiah 9 says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. How does his government, or how does peace increase, if this is just referring to a heavenly government? Heaven is a place of peace. God rules over all of it. How could it increase there? No. 
His government is established now, and it only grows. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Jesus Christ came to win the world, and when he ascended to the throne as king, what did God give him? God gave him a present. God gave him the world. In Psalm 2, it says, I will make the nations your inheritance. Jesus is the king of the world. His government is established, and it will only increase. Last week, um, Whitley and I went with the Taylors to a performance of Handel's Messiah. And it was pretty good. I'll say it was fine. The music was fine. Um, But I'm a bit of a stickler. Uh, When it comes to uh, music and poetry, my general rule is don't mess up a good thing. Okay? If you have good music, play it excellently. Don't mess it up. And this performance... Again, music was fine, but I was pretty disappointed because it was uh, the Taylor's first time to see it. And whoever arranged the performance cut out about half of it. Now, if you've seen it before, it can be a little long, okay? And so there's the temptation to cut out part of it, but what a mistake. (laughs) Imagine going to a show and leaving during the intermission, right? You, You end up missing the entire resolution of the show. And so whoever arranged this performance did it in such a way that the last piece that they performed was the Hallelujah Chorus, okay? Uh, If you've ever listened uh, to Messiah or seen it, uh, I will tell you, the Hallelujah Chorus does not go at the end. Everyone likes it. It's the most well-known part of the show, and so that's why people like to put it at the end. But the Hallelujah Chorus doesn't go there. It goes in the middle of the performance, Because that's when Jesus came. He came in the middle of history. Everything changed with the coming of Jesus. It does not simply change at the end of history when he comes back. If you've never listened to Messiah, I would love to point you to a good version on YouTube. Um, And and there you will see where it's supposed to be placed. Um, But one thing that you'll be surprised by if you go listen to it um, is what comes right before the Hallelujah Chorus. It's Psalm 2, God laughing at his enemies, promising to rule over the nations with a rod of iron and to dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. That seems kind of strange. And so the tenor uh, in the performance is singing, thou shalt break them and dash them to pieces. Hallelujah. <laughs> uh, it's kind of a shock. And you wonder, how does that make sense? It makes sense because while the nations raged and sought to kick against the Lord, he sent his Messiah to put everything to rights, to bring everything back into order. And at the center of the chorus, it says, the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That's what happened at the middle of history It is not what will happen. It has happened, and we are to make sure that everyone knows. Handel understood what the Bible taught, and so he wrote it into his oratorio that way. And what else does the Bible say about this? Uh, If we look at Hebrews 2 for a moment. That's not Hebrews 2. There it is. Hebrews 2 and verse 5, it says, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, Subjected, past tense, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. 
You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. God has put everything in subjection to Christ. There's nothing outside of Christ's control. Jesus is no longer under the angels. God has crowned him, which also means he has subjected everything to him. Now, you maybe say, let's, let's finish uh, that verse 8 in Hebrews 2, because it says, At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And that's true. We don't see everything in subjection to him yet, but that's why Jesus sent us out. He sent us out armed with the word and with the light. We go and tell creation to bow down to Jesus. You go tell creation, you can't get away from him. The light's coming. The the light has already dawned. There's no escape. Bow down to the Lord Jesus. You can't take Elon Musk's ship to Mars and get away because God owns that too. That also has been subjected to Christ. Space travel is a really cool idea to me, honestly. If we end up going to Mars, like, that's just great. We can uh, uh, create churches there too uh, so that the, the reign of Jesus is evident and present everywhere that we are. I love that idea. But he, he made it. God has put it underneath his control. Apart from him, nothing has being that has been given being. There is nothing outside of his control. He holds our bodies together. He holds this building together by the word of his power. Jesus is Lord of every person, every molecule, every planet. Why did the winds and the waves obey him when he spoke? Because they recognized his voice. The voice of the one who made them and they bowed down to him. The wind and the waves do this. They've learned their lesson, but we haven't yet. Mankind is still actively trying to rebel against its king, but it will not work. Jesus came to bring the light of God to the world. He came to bring peace between heaven and earth. And the earth rejected his terms. They didn't like his terms of peace. The terms were, worship the Lord. Confess your sins and you will be forgiven. And mankind refused the offer. Instead, mankind countered with its own terms. It said, how about we just kill you instead? And they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Mankind sought to snuff out the light of God. But who can reach up to the heavens and extinguish the sun? What authority does man have to tell the waves not to roll? How much less can we tell God not to shine? But that's what we tried to do. We tried to put out the flame of heaven. We killed him. And then we put him in a dark tomb. And church, the darkness lasted three days. And there were the last three days of darkness the world ever saw. Because the Son of Heaven rose and the radiance of His glory burst through the darkness and now it will never be stopped. Trying to snuff out the light of Jesus is like trying to hold a lid over a volcano. It's a silly image, I know. 
But imagine trying to put a giant lid over a volcano. I don't want the volcano to erupt. I'm going to put a lid over it. And by doing that, you are only ensuring that it will erupt. You are helping to build its pressure. You are actually magnifying the eruption and increasing the blast. That's what the enemies of God did at the crucifixion. They attempted to cover up the glory of heaven with a rock. And when the disciples came to the tomb, the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty. The sun had risen and he was not going to be found in the darkness anymore. When John says that the darkness didn't understand the light, that's what he means. The darkness sought to extinguish the light, but it could not comprehend it. It didn't understand its origin or authority. That's why 1 Corinthians says, If the rulers of the age understood, comprehended, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They tried to snuff out the flame, and they succeeded only in making it brighter. They tried a sneak attack to win the war, and they ended up losing everything. In trying to win, they had to surrender. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not understand it, and it cannot overcome it. Okay, so what should we do with this? couple of applications for you and then we'll be done number one we should remember that the light came he came he is with us he is for us which means no one can be against us number two we should stand on the word and by that i mean we should stand on jesus he should make us confident and courageous to carry the light into the darkness and i also mean by that that we should stand on the bible The Bible is God's message about the light written for us. It shines God's light onto our fears and into the dark places that are still within us. Often in the mornings when I get up, I don't feel like going and reading my Bible. But I do it. And God meets me there. We must stand on his word. The third application we should take from this is that we should enjoy Christmas. We have no reason to be a curmudgeon. We should hang the lights. We should make the Christmas cookies. We should sing the songs. We should give hugs. We should sip the cider or the eggnog because it's all about celebrating the light. We should laugh with friends and family. We should laugh at the futility of the darkness. We should give gifts. We should give thanks. We should say prayers and read all the Christmas stories. Do it all. And when you see people putting away their lights in January... You can say to your soul, or perhaps you can say to your kids, these lights might get stuffed into a box for a time. It might get put away into a dark room, but God's light never can. It happened once, but he has risen. The sun is up, and it will never set. The early Romans, they worshipped a god named Sol, which means sun. They worshipped the sun. And a couple hundred years after Christ was crucified, uh, before Constantine legalized Christianity, and before he himself became a Christian, um, there was a yearly festival to Sol Invictus, the unconquerable sun. And they celebrated Sol Invictus on December 25th, because they said that was Sol's birthday. So... They believed December 25th was the birthday of the unconquerable sun, and they had no idea how right they were. Now, we don't know for certain that Jesus was born on December 25th. The earliest record that we have saying that came from the mid-300s. 
So it's possible. But it doesn't matter. We continue to celebrate Christmas. We continue to celebrate God sending Christ. Christ coming to cancel the enmity that existed between God and man. And we can celebrate that on December 25th because that was either the day the unconquerable Son of God truly dawned or it is the day that we reject Sol Invictus in order to worship Christus Invictus, the unconquerable Christ. Hebrews 7 says Jesus has become our high priest forever on the basis of his indestructible life. The Logos came. The Logos shines. He is God with us. He is God in us. And church, he is unconquerable. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, you truly are transcendent above everything. And in your grace... And love, you chose to come near to us in the person of Jesus. You are also imminent. You are very accessible. You want us to be able to come to you uh, with boldness because we have access to you through Christ. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this word. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for what you did at Christmas when the, the light of the Lord truly uh, dawned in such a way that it can never go out. Lord, we pray that uh, your Son would rise in our hearts so that we can uh, walk in the light, walk as children of the light. We want to be the light, as your word says. Please fill us with the confidence that your uh, word tells us that we can have. Please fill us with joy so that as we celebrate Christmas, we can do it in such a way that we're not finding our satisfaction in the traditions or in the gifts or in anything else. We are finding it all in Jesus and receiving everything else as an evidence of your grace, receiving everything else as a, a reason for us to give thanks because we know that you have forever defeated the darkness. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will, stand up. Right here in front of us is the communion table. And if you are uh, a member of Christ's body, if you uh, know him, you follow him, you are invited to his table. And so I would say just come on down to the, uh, the front. There are cups marked uh, wine and juice, so grab whichever your conscience allows.